Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis from Elsevier, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the pandemic and beyond. Hi, I'm Shiv Glani, and today I'm delighted to welcome Max Bronstein to Raise Line. He's an Assistant Director for Health Innovation at the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy, or OSTP. In his work for the Biden administration, Max has helped lead the launch of the Advanced Research Projects Agency for Health, also known as ARPA-H, which aims to drive transformative biomedical and health breakthroughs for the benefit of all Americans. Other focus areas include leading work to strengthen the biotechnology workforce, broadening access to clinical genetic sequencing, and crafting policy solutions to advance development of curative medicines for devastating pediatric diseases. Max's career has also included work in the private and nonprofit sectors on precision medicine approaches for rare disease, health policy, and health innovation, which stops at the National Science Foundation, Research America, and the Every Life Foundation for Rare Diseases. He's also the founder of the Journal of Science and Policy and Governance. So Max, thanks for taking the time to be with us today. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me, Shiv. So we, we've run into the same circles because several of the people I know have recommended I get in touch with you, including uh, uh, Tanya Simoncelli, who we just spoke about before we started the podcast at CZI, and Tanisha Coates, um, who's been really uh, helpful over the years. Um, so I'd like to start first with learning more about you and what got you interested in science policy and research. Yeah, I so I, I've always been kind of intrigued with the the sort of power and potential of, of science and I think uh, what it can do is is quite transformative in terms of its potential, and it and it becomes really exciting once you think about how to apply science and technology to actually help people. And in my case, because I've been doing health policy for so long, you know, I think very deeply and have thought for a long time about how we can use science and technology to save lives and to improve lives. That's that's really what it comes down to at, at the end of the day for me. Yeah, no, I mean, it's definitely something we can relate on. Uh, it's a scale of impact you can have both from science, but then obviously with the policy aspects. And so a lot of our students in our audience are current and future healthcare professionals and researchers. I wanted to touch on the academic journal that you founded for graduate and undergraduate students, which I mentioned, the Journal of Science Policy and Governance. How did that come about and what are the missions of the journal? Yeah, so when, when I was in graduate school, I started doing a lot of thinking about uh, the challenges around publishing. And I remember being a graduate student and asking uh, some of my professors like, hey, I, you know, I like this piece that I've worked up. Is it worth trying to publish it? And I was surprised that some of them said, no, like you're not going to get, you're not going to get into a journal. You're not going to make it. And they were saying that I think they were legitimately trying to offer honest advice, but they were advising me of that because it is really hard to get published if you don't have a track record, if you're not a tenured professor. Uh, and, and so that is a, is a major challenge and it was a major disappointment because if you look at where some of the most innovative thinking was going on, like it was not coming from tenured professors. It was coming from early stage career professionals. In some cases it was coming from students, but they didn't have a voice or venue to publish their work at all. Uh, so that's really what, what drove me to conceptualize the journal. And so when, when I created the journal, it was intended to be, uh, a space only for students and young scholars to publish. So if you're not in that category, you're actually not eligible to publish with the journal. And we created that so so that students would have a voice, a venue, and even a pathway to getting into science and technology policy uh, really as, as a career option. The, you know, the other remarkable thing about the, the journal is uh, it publishes in some uh, formats that are quite unique. 
So one of the things that the journal does is publish policy memos, which I've never seen another publication publish a policy memo. And a policy memo is so important because if you want your policy idea to actually be read by a member of Congress, the head of an agency, some key decision maker, you can bet your butt they are not going to be reading a 30-page manuscript in an academic journal. But they have a pretty good chance of actually reading a policy memo that's three, four pages long with an executive summary and has clear recommendations for an actual policymaker. So th those were some of the innovative things that, that we did with, with the journal. Uh, and happy to report that the journal has just celebrated its 10th anniversary. And all, all of the work that it's the great work that the journal has, has done is completely enabled by this amazing staff of volunteers and, of course, by all of these uh, submissions that come in from students and young scholars really across the world on, on a whole variety of science and technology policy issues and health policy issues as well. So very proud of, of that uh, work. Yeah, that's incredible. Congratulations on the, the decade anniversary. We, um, you know, now that we've joined Elsevier, we've learned a lot about our journal colleagues, people like Laura Hassink, who runs STMJ. And we just had on raise line uh, Richard Horton, who's the 200th um, who's the 12th editor-in-chief of The Lancet, uh, which is celebrating its 200th anniversary next year. So hopefully in that 190 years, uh, your journal can do the same. Um, so I, I mentioned in the intro that uh, you were Chief Advocacy and Science Policy Officer at the Every Life Foundation for Rare Diseases. We've had several people who have been affiliated with Every Life on the podcast, including John Crowley. And uh, just on Sunday, I saw Matt Wilsey, uh, uh, you know, whose child Grace has uh, has. Uh, Engli one deficiency. What was your initial interest in rare disease? How did that begin? And, and tell us more about kind of your current work in that area. Yeah, it's, it's a little bit of a longer story, but it, it sort of started uh, with all the, the work I was doing in, in DC. And I'd grown up in DC and worked in DC. And for many years, uh, I was working at the National Science Foundation and then was the policy director at an organization called Research America. And had worked in DC and, and sort of reached a little bit of a, a burnout part. And, and that happens to a lot of folks, I think. And I got a little fatigued and said, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm probably gonna be working into my mid seventies or even eighties. I'm gonna take some time to basically take a sabbatical. And I spent, turned into nine months traveling outside, well, six months traveling outside the US and then three inside the US. So basically took nine months purely to explore the world and to travel, I mean, got rid of my apartment, sold like everything I owned and uh, really had had an amazing time doing that. And then towards the end of this trip, uh, I was ready to come back home. I think my bank account was probably ready for me to come back home too. So decided it was, it was time to come back to the U.S. And, you know, I, I knew I had always wanted to live and, and to work in, in California um, and basically made a decision that I was going to move to California and make it work with or without a job, which which I did after this trip. And once I, I sort of arrived in the Bay Area in, in San Francisco, I was literally crashing on a friend's couch at, at the time and started looking up, you know, who were people I had met and worked with in DC, but had some sort of presence in, in California. And from all the work I had done uh, with Research America and some of my other contacts, I, I looked up Every Life because I had spoken at one of their conferences about uh, the topic of NIH funding. And I, I sort of reconnected with them and said, hey, you know, I'm, I'm new to the Bay Area, but would love to work with you guys if there's any way. And, and fast forward three years, uh, 
I became the chief policy officer at the Every Life Foundation for Rare Diseases, got the opportunity to work so closely with some of the most inspiring, extraordinary, incredible patients you can ever imagine meeting. And we had some major victories along the way. We uh, were one of the leading patient organizations to advance uh, a landmark piece of legislation called the 21st Century Cures Act, which actually had uh, a section in it named for the for Bo Biden, the Bo Biden cancer moonshot, and, and in fact, that that legislation, the 21st Century Cures Act, it was one of the last things President Obama signed before his his presidency wrapped up, and it was just extraordinary to be part of that effort and and you know be part of this amazing team of advocates who who helped get that bill over the finish line. Yeah, that's incredible. What a great legacy there, and. Um... And certainly uh, the importance of networking, we talk about that on the podcast quite a bit of, you know, building and maintaining these relationships. And certainly you found that, uh, and also the importance of taking a sabbatical. So I'm glad you glad you were able to do that in your career. So, you know, you mentioned some policy changes when you were from Every Life, uh, working at Every Life. You know, next year is the 40th anniversary of the Orphan Drug Act. Um, and there have been a lot of accomplishments from that particular policy over the first four decades. I'm curious what's happening from, on the rare disease space right now that you think is particularly interesting or important. Yeah. So when I think about some of the, the technologies, the platform technologies that are coming uh, to market in some cases, but are, are really just sort of emerging in a, in a research sense, I'm so giddy about these new technologies. So we have, you know, antisense oligonucleotides, we have gene therapy, we have CRISPR, we have lipid nanoparticles, we have mRNA. These are extraordinary platforms. And one of the reasons I'm so excited about them is, is I think they can enable and usher in an era where we're not just treating the under, we're not just treating the symptoms of disease, but the underlying causes of disease, which is really sort of the holy grail, gold standard of, of medicine, in my opinion, because if we can uh, treat these diseases and ideally reverse or, or cure them, uh, and if you can do it before a patient has even experienced a single day of sickness, which we think we can do in some cases, to me, that that is exactly where we want to be as a society and, and where medicine should be. Uh, but but getting there is is a major challenge. There's certainly technological challenges and challenges of running clinical trials and, and all those types of things. But, you know, we also have regulatory challenges, too. I, I think we need to think about a modern regulatory paradigm uh, and a modern drug development paradigm where it doesn't cost two billion dollars to develop one drug for one disease, because that candidly is just not a sustainable model. We're never going to get to treating the over 10,000 diseases that that we have uncovered if we're spending $2 billion, one disease at a time and taking a decade to do it. It's just, it's never going to happen. So we need to radically reinvent the the drug paradigm if we're ever going to treat some of the rare diseases. And then there's there's a, a category of even fewer diseases, ultra rare, sometimes called nano rare. Uh, basically, this this category is about diseases where you have very low prevalence, very poorly understood diseases, and in often cases, you don't even have a disease name. You have the name of a of a gene mutation. So th- there's there's so much work to do in that space, and and I think uh, that's where we're going to see hopefully see a lot of progress in terms of the technology coming together. And on top of that, you know, we're going to need some some regulatory and, and reimbursement paradigms that work for treating those types of conditions. Yeah, no, absolutely. And yeah, just to that point, yeah, just yesterday I had 
um, Scott Reich, whose son has Fox G1 syndrome. And uh, that's one D, one single letter mutation in one copy of Fox G1 that's led to a devastating illness in their family. Um, so talking about changing the regulatory paradigm, um, tell us a bit about, you know, this this advanced research project agency for health that president biden established it seems like that's one of the things um at the nih to that was established to improve the government's ability to speed up biomedical and health research so yeah give our audience a breakdown of what that what that group does yeah so so arpa-h is a completely new entity in government and uh, just to give you a sense of how rapidly this has come together i i started in uh, the government about a year and a half ago. And at that point in time, ARPA-H was, was basically a concept on a piece of paper. Fast forward to today, we have a billion dollars from, from Congress. Thank you, Congress. Uh, we have an agency set up. We have leadership in place. And ARPA-H is now scaling up in terms of hiring program officers and starting to uh, kind of pin out what they want to focus on in terms of their the core areas during their inaugural year. So I'm extraordinarily excited to have been able to play uh, some some role in helping lead the creation of ARPA-H and just so thrilled to see what, what the agency is, is going to support and the types of breakthroughs that it will ultimately enable. So the, their their platform and their mission is is really about creating these transformative breakthroughs for all Americans, which basically means making sure that that there are you know, cures for diseases, better diagnostic platforms, uh, better technologies out there, but also making sure that those technologies and platforms are actually available to all Americans. I, I think folks on this podcast probably know well that this country has not done a great job at enabling access to the fruits of science and technology in a, in a broad sense. So we have major challenges to do as a society and to take care of as a society to ensure that all Americans can access the the fruits of technology, whether it's on the, the health side or on, on other sort of sides of science and technology. So we have we have a lot of work to do, and that will be a core piece of of what ARPA-H is all about. Uh, overall, it's it's I think it's the most exciting thing government has done in, in decades around biomedical and health science. Obviously, the work that NIH does is incredibly important, and the work that industry does is incredibly important too. And and those are both essential pieces of uh, creating improved health outcomes for patients. But ARPA-H is going to fill this gap that is currently not being filled by industry. It's not being filled by NIH. So ARPA-H will be able to fund some of the really high-risk transformative projects, projects that you know if they work could could really transform the way we do healthcare in the United States, the way we treat disease. And the, the other piece that's so important is this emphasis on technology platforms, which I, I have to explain a, a little bit because I, I do get a lot of questions about this. So historically people think of NIH and they think of funding as, you know, you fund a specific disease area or you fund a specific organ or, or maybe organ system. Uh, ARPA-H is not designed to think that way. It's more of a problem-centered approach, and it's going to be focusing on funding these technological platforms as opposed to individual disease areas. So if you're able to develop a platform that uh, potentially transforms how we do medicine, right? Now we're talking about a technology that can treat hundreds or thousands of diseases, not a one disease uh, paradigm, which is what we've had historically in, in the U.S. And, and across many parts of the world. So that's that's the broader goal um, of, of ARPA-H and, and a little bit about how their 
approach is distinct from from other parts of the government. That's fascinating. I'm really excited to see what comes out of that. And, uh, you know, certainly the COVID experience proved to us that it is possible with enough, you know, funding and enough willpower, public-private partnerships to, to create not one, but multiple vaccines for, for COVID in this case. And hopefully the same sort of warp speed type approaches can, can lead to more platform-based therapies for these rare diseases and, and other diseases. So transitioning while we're still in government at ARPA-H, let's go into OSTP. I think a lot of our audience have heard, has heard of OSTP. Tell us a bit about your work at OSTP. What does like an average week look like for you? And what are some of the, the key things you're, you're working on that you're excited about apart from ARPA-H? Yeah. So OSTP stands for the Office of Science and Technology Policy. It's an office within the White House. Uh, the White House, for those who are not familiar with its structure, it's, it's basically comprised of a a variety of, of offices and, and components, and they all sort of work together, but in, in different uh, components of domestic or international security policy. So that's like a little big picture of how OSTP fits into the White House. Uh, the office itself has actually existed since the 1970s. So it's it's been around for a little while, um, but there are some changes in this administration that I think are really exciting and very positive for uh, patients and for health. One of the big changes is that the head of the office, who is formerly the science advisor to the president, has been made uh, a member of the president's cabinet. So that means that the science advisor to the president literally sits at the cabinet table with Secretary of Health, Secretary of uh, Homeland Security, Secretary of Education. So that that's a remarkable change. I think that's great news for science, certainly great news for patients and and really for, for Americans. Um, so, so that's one big change. Another is that we actually have, for the first time, a health and life science team within OSTP, uh, which has never existed before. And I think that's a reflection of the president's uh, determination, interest, and excitement over health research and biomedical science in general. So I, I think he you know, recognized that he wanted the White House to have a very strong voice and strong role around health and life science. And that's one of the reasons my, my team exists. And, and that's the team that, uh, that I sit on. So that's a little bit about how the, the office is structured. Uh, the portfolio of the team is gigantic and fascinating. So it's everything from cancer to pandemic response and preparedness to antimicrobial resistance to nutrition to mental health, telehealth, and everything in between. So it's a gigantic portfolio. My portfolio focuses on on several areas, um, and, and I kind of put them into two uh, neat buckets, although it's it's rarely a neat day in, in the White House. So I'll say that one of the big projects has been around uh, the, the biomanufacturing and biotechnology and or uh, bioeconomy executive order, which was signed back in September by the president. And this was a, a, a spanning executive order that was intended to really strengthen the biomanufacturing biotechnology industry in the U.S. And there's a component of that that's around all about workforce. And so if you want to have, for example, if you want to onshore the production of vaccines or of jet fuel, there's lots of products that we would love to be able to make domestically, but you can't do it without a strong workforce. And historically, the, the biotech and biomanufacturing workforce has not really looked like uh, sort of a clear picture of, of America. So there's a lot of underrepresentation of minorities, underrepresentation of women, 
the the workforce really doesn't draw on the full sort of potential and value that Americans can offer. So part of my role is is leading an interagency group to think about how we can create a stronger uh, biotechnology, biomanufacturing workforce so that we can be prepared for future pandemic threats or to create a, a more self-sufficient or, or, or circular economy, if, if you will. So that's that's one big bucket is, is around the biotech and sort of bioeconomy piece. Uh, the other one is around precision diagnostics and, and precision medicine. So back in, in September, uh, OSTP led an event with the National Institute of Health, and it was an event all about genomic medicine and, and in particular, ensuring that uh, newborn babies, especially uh, newborn babies who are acutely ill, get access to whole genome sequencing, which is one of the most incredible and powerful platforms I think we have today. If you think about the fact that the first human genome took about 10 years to complete it at a cost of $3 billion, nowadays you can sequence a genome in less than 24 hours and roughly about $1,000. So that is a, a massive shift in diagnostic potential. And it is so important to make sure that all Americans have the opportunity to to get a diagnosis. They fundamentally have a right to get diagnosed, whether it's through newborn screening or newborn sequencing or, or even sequencing for an acutely ill newborn. It's so important for patients to get access to that uh, capability and to get a diagnosis and ideally to get a treatment as well. So that's the the second part is, you know, once you have this precision diagnosis and you know exactly which gene is broken in, in this individual, how do you then translate that into a treatment and ideally a curative one that that takes care of, of the disease itself before that patient ever experiences even one day of sickness. So uh, those are some of the big picture policy things I'm, I'm thinking about and trying to create new paradigms and, and new models to enable that type of medicine, this vision of medicine where, you know, in 48 hours, you can go from getting a diagnosis to uh, cure, treating someone with a curative medicine so that they never even have one day of sickness. That is amazing. That's really something for our audience to get excited about and contributing however they can to that to that vision. Um, you know, I know Illumina is making progress and getting to a $200 genome, whole genome sequence. So at that kind of cost, every newborn in America could potentially get it. And I'm sure you're working on different policies for that. And that data set underlying that, obviously there's privacy and, you know, confidentiality, HIPAA concerns that we have to be aware of, but that data set itself could help lead to more discoveries and um, and, and therapies. Um, I, I understand that you used to work at a, at a biomedical company too, doing gene therapy. You know, we've touched about, we've touched on your like academic, your journal, your, uh, public or government and your nonprofit experience. Let's, let's actually talk a bit about that too. What did you learn from that experience working in a, in a biomedical company and any takeaways you have from that? Yeah, it was an amazing experience to, to work in the gene therapy field. And, uh, I learned a lot. One one of the things I learned is is that medicine is extremely hard. Uh, transformative medicine has brings with it transformative challenges too. So, as as the sort of lead policy nerd within the company, I was in charge of figuring out. Okay, you know we have these potential therapies that could uh, hopefully cure a disease in one administration, which is very different than the sort of paradigm in the U.S. where. Uh, people are taking one one drug for the rest of their life and they're not actually reversing it, but they're sort of 
hopefully ameliorating some of the symptoms and, and they're being, they're having to pay each time they take that drug. So gene therapy and, and the single administration curative paradigm is, is a huge shift from that. So we were thinking about how could you develop a payment model that would allow for maybe doing multiple payments over the over a certain period of time. So let's say instead of paying 100% of the cost at the time of dosing, you pay 20% for five years. So payment over time was, was one model that we were thinking about. You know, the other piece of this is adding what's called a value-based component to a con- payment contract so that uh, it actually makes it a lot, I think, preferential for, for payers because they effectively only pay or if the, the drug is actually working. So you could imagine a payment scenario where if in year three, the drug stops working, there's actually no payment that's made. So it it de-risks a lot of the, the sort of capital challenge that I think these this new generation of therapies presents to payers because you you basically say, look, you, you know, you're only paying for positive outcomes. And and that's candidly where we should all be going in medicine, where we're really incentivizing value and outcomes instead of just utilization as we've done historically. So I, I think that is exactly the, the kind of thing that we should be doing. The other piece that I learned that was really important is when, when you're working on rare, ultra rare diseases, Finding patients is a huge challenge in this space. And a lot of companies were taking it upon themselves to actually sponsor genetic testing and, and do other means to try to uncover patients. So uh, this, you know, that's that's one approach that's been tried, but it's, you know, finding patients and doing diagnoses is fundamentally a pre-competitive activity. I, I think ideally all patients would be diagnosed as soon as they're born, either through newborn screening or newborn sequencing, and it would allow for uh, patients to, you know, it would basically end the diagnostic odyssey before it starts. So none of this five, seven year journey or bouncing between specialists or being prescribed a medicine to treat a disease you don't have, none of that would happen if we could diagnose at birth and and get patients um, into trials or onto treatments, uh, ideally. So those were some of the things that, that I learned working in the gene therapy sector. That's awesome. I, I again, like, think that's a real, real solid vision. And we've spoken to enough patients and parents of children with these rare diseases to know that this, you know, multi-year. I think on average is four to nine years to get your diagnosis. Uh, actually, just yesterday I was talking to one of our teammates who has ankylosing spondylitis, and uh, a whole genome sequence would have would have found that immediately. Even a simple X-ray showing ossification of, of her spinal cord, but it took her eight years to get a, a proper diagnosis. Um, bouncing around specialist, specialist fee for service versus value based, as, as you kind of indicated as well. So super interesting. Um, and again, you're you're well positioned given all your experience across these different sectors to bring it all together. So I know we're coming up on time, so I just had a couple last questions. Uh, the first is, as you know, Osmosis is a health education company. We we uh, we try to fill in knowledge gaps, and so if you could. Uh, educate any stakeholder about any topic, what what would it be and why? So I actually think getting folks more educated on how drug development works is an extraordinarily important topic. And I say that because after we've all just lived through this horrible pandemic period, uh, a, a lot of people had questions about drug development, very good questions, and they're often directed at me. And sometimes I had good answers, and, and sometimes I had to do some research too to, to find an answer to those types of questions. But what it ultimately reminded me of is, is drug development. Drug development is very risky. It's very complex, highly capital intensive. 
and an extremely high failure rate too. So, you know, when people were reading in, in the popular news about, you know, the state of vaccine development or state of treatment development, they had, you know, you're not given any appreciation for the nuance or complexities around drug development, nor, nor did they understand how unbelievably lucky uh, humanity got with these extraordinary vaccines that saved the day around COVID, the number of therapeutics that turned out to be effective. I mean, we got extremely lucky with those hits, uh, to be candid about it. And I don't think people appreciated how many failures there were in that space either. So, you know, for every two drugs that were effective, there was probably another a thousand or more that were tried uh, and and totally failed for one reason or another. So, um, getting people some appreciation for how long it normally takes to do drug development, the capital intensity of it, uh, and just how how much risk is involved in that area, I think would would go a long way with the public. That's a great, great point and something we should definitely consider on our side. We've learned a lot about it over the over this this podcast. We have people like David Fagenbaum, who I'm sure you know, Castleman disease and he, you know, the Every Cure Foundation to say, look, it costs two billion dollars to make a drug, let's repurpose the existing three thousand drugs humanity's already developed. Um but then also uh I'm sure you know Chris Gibson at Recursion, who we had on two weeks ago, and they're doing fascinating work and hopefully changing the paradigm as well with the platform. Um my last two questions are, you know, given our audience of many early stage uh, healthcare professionals, researchers, policy wonks, uh, what advice would you give to them about uh, meeting their the challenges of this moment in in our uh, in our uh, nation's history? So I think it's so important for early career folks to to identify mentors, uh, mentors who are really solid and folks who will just candidly have your back. I, I mean, there are a lot of tough decisions that you're going to have to make over the course of your career, personal life. And, you know, we sort of pretend that career and personal life are separate, but they are actually very much deeply entwined. So finding mentors who can help you navigate some of those tough decisions, whether it's taking a job, moving to a new city, uh, you know, maybe maybe quitting a job like these are all tough things, and it's so helpful to to have people in, in your corner when you're trying to navigate those decisions, so you don't have to navigate them alone. I think is is so important. And as I kind of reflect on on my career, identifying those folks was was so important. Some a little practical advice I would also offer on this front is is that. Uh, you know, when I was in undergraduate and graduate school, they'd tell you to go, oh, you know, go ask for an informational interview. And I, I always thought that was a terrible piece of advice, actually, because as soon as you use the word interview, and if you use the word interview to a stranger, you know, that puts a lot of onus on them to potentially think about hiring you. So I, I wouldn't approach people that way. I would find someone who you think is doing really cool work and has a really exciting portfolio and just say, hey, you know, I would love to find time to grab coffee with you and pick your brain. You seem like you've had a, a fascinating career. Would love to hear how you got there rather than going in and asking for an informational interview, which I, I really don't think people should be doing. So just go in and find people who can give career advice. And if the conversation goes well, you know, hopefully that person could become a mentor, a friend, potential employer. There's all kinds of directions it, it could go. But definitely recommend starting that way. The The other piece of advice I, I would offer is, I, I mentioned this earlier in the podcast, but find time to take a sabbatical, find time to go travel and to explore. Uh, 
Uh, most of us are going to be working for a very long time in our lives, probably to our 70s or our 80s. So, you know, what's taking off a few months or six months to go do something extraordinary and take a break from from your normal routine? I think that's so important. And you'll find that you learn uh, far more maybe than when than anything you would have if you had been in the office for those several months. So um, find those opportunities and, and take them while you can. Absolutely. Um, great advice. Really good advice. I hope our audience uh, picks that out and, and goes uh, goes about doing that. Um, my last question, is there anything else that you want to get across to our audience while we have you? No, I mean, those are the main the main points. I, you know, you mentioned repurposing. I, I do want to put in another plug for that because I, I, when I think about repurposing as a drug development strategy, I, I get very excited by it. And in fact, if you look at some of the first drugs that we used to deal with the COVID pandemic, they indeed were repurposed drugs. So it's it's a very low hanging fruit uh, in terms of um, an approach strategy for drug development. And it's one that that has so much potential that we are just barely scratching the surface of. And the reason we're just barely scratching the surface is in this area, like in so many areas, we haven't figured out a good suite of incentives to really encourage and foster drug development in this space. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, not only do we have challenges in repurposing, especially when it comes to repurposing of generics, we have challenges in developing new drugs for antimicrobial resistance for ultra rare diseases. So there's there's this extraordinarily high medical need out there, but in a lot of cases, we haven't figured out the right system, the right paradigm to really uh, foster development in those areas. And assuming that development works, we have to remember how to actually ensure that patients get access to the, the fruits of, of those uh, technologies and those developments. Because yeah, if we're not getting patients access to medicine at the end of the day, we have all failed in our mission. So I hope folks keep that in mind as, as they listen to this podcast. Absolutely. And, and put it in your good reminder that Ultimately, it's all for the patients. It's all for us as people. Uh, and again, this vision of helping people before they become patients that you've articulated, I think, is one of the key takeaways from this conversation. So, so Max, with that, I'd like to thank you not only for taking the time to be with us on the podcast, but more importantly, for the for the fact that you dedicated your career to advancing these uh, issues and strengthening our healthcare system, or as we say, raising the line. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. And thank you for having me, Shiv. Appreciate it. And with that, I'm Shiv Guglani. Thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to raise line and strengthen our healthcare system. We're all in this together. Take care. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our episodes at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.